You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, we hear more about the detection of a petroleum compound found in a monitoring well in Moanalua. It is not in a drinking water well, but is it just a matter of time? Earlier today, we talked with Board of Water Supply Manager and Chief Engineer Ernie Lau and Water Quality Manager Erwin Kawata. Kawata says the sample dates back to May. It was sent to a specialized mainland lab, and the results were received at the end of June. The analysis was shared with the military as well as the EPA and Department of Health. They were mulling it over until its release to the public just yesterday. It's important to keep in mind this is a single data point for us in Mauna Loa Valley. It's border water supply in this Red Hill situation. We only really have uh, two monitor wells that we're taking samples and testing at. This location is CH43. It's located in Mauna Loa Valley. It's a two-inch diameter well. It doesn't serve anybody drinking water. I want to make it very clear. But it was installed back in the mid-40s and was uh, primarily installed to monitor water level data in the valley in the underground aquifer. But Irwin's been working very hard to get water samples out of this small diameter well. What it's telling us now is that, you know, there is the presence of petroleum chemicals in Loa Valley, something we have not seen before. And what is the theory that we're working on? I mean, do we believe it has come from the most recent spills, or could this be an old spill, or when do you know? Well, at this point, Catherine, it's really hard to tell. We really need to collect more information and get a better understanding of groundwater flow in that Mauna Loa Valley area. However, it does say something about petroleum contamination from Red Hill is actually being observed on the Mauna Loa side of the valley. Something that was totally unexpected because primarily groundwater is understood to move away from Moanalua Valley, in other words, move from you know, east to the west direction, but we're actually seeing something opposite of that. So it actually really warrants further testing and data collection before we can get some very clear and definitive understanding about you know, groundwater flow and impacts from Red Hill. And Ernie, we do have a number of new wells that are uh, in the works. You know, how soon could those come online and, and are, are they in that area? Irwin's been working very hard to actually site and uh, work with the landowners to get permission. Yes, there are a number of wells that Board of Water Supply is drilling in addition to what the Navy's required to install. Erwin, you can describe that? Sure. In Moanalua Valley, really the closest one there that we have planned is at the golf course. That one is planned for sometime next year. We're going through the permitting design and getting a landowner access approval process. Beyond that, we have one at the Animal Quarantine Station, one at Halava District Park, and certainly one just behind the correctional facility that is scheduled for later on this year as far as drilling is concerned. For future, we do have a second well planned at the Animal Quarantine Station. We do have one at the Alapu Malu Park scheduled that we're still getting Sitting County Department of Parks and Rec uh, approval to install that monitor well. And then three more monitor wells at our Halaba Shaft pumping station. This area, Moanalo Valley, is mostly residential. There's not too many places, open spaces, where we can drill monitoring wells. So it's quite challenging, but we're continuing to look at different potential locations. And Ernie, you do want to stress that it is not in the drinking water. These are basically sentinel wells. It's an early indicator. These are trace amounts. But it is the very first time that we've seen this in these wells. Exactly. The water is safe to drink for our customers. And Catherine, I don't think people understand the amount of work that Erwin Kawata has put toward this effort since the leak that started in 2014. He worked very hard with the laboratories to find a way to increase the sensitivity of the tests for these types of chemicals. So the detections are down in the parts per trillion uh, range. So through his efforts, the laboratory is able to reliably test down to those levels. Like you said, we want to do that because this provides an early indicator of what might be coming in the future, rather than the sensitivity of the test being much higher when it becomes a problematic health issue and environmental issue. So I just want to thank Erin Kowatsa for his efforts. And, you know, earlier this week, uh, we had a a bit of a hiccup with some results that the uh, task force I think University of Hawaii, you know, had planned to release it Wednesday. They put the dashboard up. My understanding is that there's been 
been some question about the methods that are being used to get those levels that, that they were detecting uh, in the military's water system. And I know you're n- really not involved so much with that, but, you know, just your thoughts. First of all, I just want to say that I think the University of Hawaii is just trying to help. What I've seen in this Red Hill fuel crisis situation, that everybody is trying to help do what they can to help the situation to address identifying the contamination locations, advocating for the removal of the fuel. So I think their intentions are good, but I'll let Erwin speak to his thoughts on the science. Catherine, as far as the the method that was being used, I think the university was trying to push the technology or push the envelope on the ability of the fluorescence technology to actually detect petroleum. But it is, in in many respects, nonspecific as well. There are other methods that currently exist that are much more specific to actually detecting, you know, petroleum types of contamination in water. So I think at this point, it's largely experimental. I think the university has a lot more, I guess, study and vetting that needs to get done before it can actually get some final thoughts on using this type of technology going forward. Really, the test results that we want to rely upon are those that are come from official approved testing methods by EPA test methods that we're currently using that have been vetted and proven for this type of purpose. And that's where we want to focus our attention on right now. What this tells us that there's a need for greater urgency to proceed with the investigation to the impacts on the aquifer for fuel contamination and to look actually not just on Navy property, but now to look beyond Navy property, outside of Navy property where the Red Hill fuel tanks are located. And now it's really clear that it's got to be on both sides, on the east and the west of the facility, on the Moana Loa side and also the Halawa side. So insulation of more monitor wells, groundwater flow modeling, other investigations. And you know, Catherine, also it would be really helpful if the Navy just fully opened up their records uh, what happened at the facility, not only recently, but over its 79-year history. Because in the 79-year history, there's documented at least uh, 72 documented releases and possibly 180,000 gallons of older fuel releases. So it would be really helpful in the investigation if that information was made public. That was Honolulu's Chief Engineer and Board of Water Supply Manager Ernie Lau talking to us about the detection of a fuel compound in a Moanalua monitoring water well. Uh, The first indicator that our drinking water could be threatened. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the upcoming exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening. Learn more about how to be a part of this immersive, collaborative celebration of flowers at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Deborah Silverman, author of The Missing Element, Compassion for the Human Condition. The next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about personality types and how you can find the missing element that will change your life. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. We continue to hear from gubernatorial candidates as we head into this last week before the primary election. We had a chance to sit down with Vicki Cayetano yesterday and asked if she thought about running for office while she was Hawaii's first lady. Absolutely not. I think it was a great opportunity, first, you know, front row seat to seeing what it takes, and it is a lot of work. It's a 24-7 job. But no, I've not had political aspirations. I've been an entrepreneur and business person, love my ohana at work, and started 34 years ago. 
But the reason I'm in this is because I, I see so many needs and problems. And five years in a row, our population has decreased. And it's our young people, it's our working people who are leaving us. And so what was that conversation like uh, with your husband? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'd had discussions about how difficult a state Hawaii is in right now. And neither of us are people who will just complain. We are doers. We want to get in and get the job done. So I don't think he was all that surprised. Of course, you know, he had to remind me of how difficult it is. But he knows me. And he also, frankly, believes that I bring a lot to this position and can get the job done. And I have to chuckle because I did enjoy seeing the political ads with your husband at your side. <laughs> Just the smiling. differences <laughs> ads. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are different. <laughs> yes. And so, gosh, um, what makes you think that you can make a difference you know, in this office compared to your opponents? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I have a track record of getting things done. Every campaign season, a lot of promises are made. And here we are, look at this, 2022. And our state, I think I would say respectfully, has never been in a worse situation, whether you're talking about housing or homelessness. It's never been worse. So for me, I'm just a doer. Secondly, I'm fortunate. I'm 66 years old. I'm not beholden to any special interests or big companies. I can do the heavy lifting and make those tough decisions that we need to do. We can't keep kicking the can down the road. And the third reason, frankly, is like Mayor Blangiardi, I'm at a stage in my life where this is not a stepping stone to another job. This is it. And so I think when you have that perspective and the experience combination, you can get the job done. Was it something during the pandemic that spurred you to jump into this? No question that during the pandemic, I think that all the challenges that we've been facing as a state for years, sometimes decades, some of them, were only exacerbated, right? And that's why you see five years in a row, people are leaving us and everywhere you go help wanted. We talk about we want to build a hospital or we want to build affordable housing. What people don't realize is how challenging that's going to be finding the people to do all of this work. That's what we've got to tackle with urgency. You know, we did see how vulnerable we are with uh, tourism being our uh, bread and butter. And we had to get creative and help, you know, find avenues for our farmers to have their produce used. And I think it also just showed our vulnerability, you know, when it comes to food security. I don't know. Was there anything lacking that you saw with this administration as we were facing those challenges? Well, I think, you know, it's easy to have 2020 in hindsight, but I, I do think a couple things could have been done better. One is that I think having a statewide plan versus county by county to lessen confusion, to have better communication. The second thing is I think that while we have to defer to science and the medical community for the safety part of COVID, I don't think there was enough balance with what it was doing negatively to the economy. I mean, so many people were decimated. So many small businesses did not survive. And then our children. I mean, everybody knows they've lost like two years. And now we're playing catch up. So not enough is said about what we didn't do. And I think having learned that, we need to move forward understanding that we need to have more balance. And I think, you know, thank God for the vaccines. I don't think we need to look at uh, mass mandates, at least, you know, not in general. In the hospitals, yes. Certain communities for our kapuna, yes. But not as a general rule. And I think we just need to have a better balance. Is there anything else that you think you might have done differently? Well, I think that what it it has taught us is that we should not be reactive to our problems. We need to be more proactive. We've known for a long time of our over-dependence on tourism. We need to diversify our economy so we're not so heavily dependent on that. And in order to do that, though, you need to have a more business-friendly environment. You need to incentivize businesses either locally to grow or from, you know, out of state. But you don't do that if you have so many obstacles that are required. Hawaii is not known as a business-friendly state. And we need to be creative and we need to attract businesses organically as well as from out of state to come here. There are opportunities, whether it's in digital media, film industry, healthcare. 
No reason why Hawaii can't be the healthcare of the Pacific, holistic center on Hawaii Island. But that's the kind of thinking out of the box that I bring to the table because that's, you know, that's been my whole life experience is not just talking about things and being able to see the vision, but actually implementing and getting it done. You know, we did hear, oh gosh, it was Mayor Fossey, I think, way back when talking about the silver tsunami saying, yeah, we ought to think about health care and and, and building our image as the place to go, not just for sun and surf, but also high quality healthcare. And for whatever reason, you know, that hasn't happened. You know, people had high hopes for diversifying and, and, and a lot of it is just talk. We haven't seen it happen, whether it's with ag or lots of talk about high tech jobs and higher paying you know, wages, and yet it hasn't happened. So any other ideas about that? Well, I think everybody knows, even in the private sector, will say, oh, it's easy for these consultants to come in and give us a plan. But executing is where the heavy lifting is done. I do think there's one thing that's missing and what I bring to the table, and that is the political will. Like I said, I'm fortunate to be in a position, too, where I think I have a a clean slate, shall we say, of working with the legislators. And uh, it's very important for any governor to be successful, that they must be able to collaborate and partner with the legislature. Otherwise, you will not get anything done. So that is one of the things I recognize. And like working with a board, we have to work in partnership to make things happen. And then the second thing is having that entrepreneurial mind to see what kind of opportunities there are, and then to collaborate with the private sector, nonprofits, not only special interests, groups, and big business. You know, it's paying attention to like the small business community where there's so much creativity and innovation. And literally, I don't feel that our state government pays much attention at all to the small business community. When you were working uh, at United Laundry, I know that you did provide jobs for the families that were living there at the, um, at the, at the shelter. Yes, at Kauiki, uh, that was one of the plans that Dwayne Carisu had, was not only uh, giving housing, and, and yes, as we talk about affordable housing, you also have to give job opportunities, right, and affordable housing. And also, let's not forget that we must also build housing for middle class community, the working class, because if you don't have a strong middle class community, you really don't have a thriving community. So we need to, again, balance and pay attention to all the segments that make for a thriving community in in our state and you know we've heard a lot about the red tape when it comes to construction and you know you know you want to see a, a housing emergency declared so that we can we can cut through some of that and and actually get these homes built and get the homeless families off the street and into shelter um, what other specifics can you give us about doing that So, you know, on the affordable housing, there's two things about it. And when we talk about getting homeless, it it goes beyond the affordable housing because there's three segments that make up our homeless population. And we need to address them. Mental illness, substance abuse. So it's not just building the affordable housing, but we need to treat the mental illness, the substance abuse, and yes, a third component are those who don't want to be on the street, but they are because their rent has gone up and how do they manage? So unfortunately, I've seen people who are working and are still homeless. So we need to tackle all three. It's never as simple as just doing one, like build affordable housing and they will come. You need to consider how will they sustain themselves? How will they work? We have to connect all the dots, as I say, to really address and fix the problem. If you get into office, what would be your first priority? Furthering the discussion on affordable housing. I think there's two things. And, you know, if you can see that the city and county of Honolulu, they have really accelerated the affordable housing project. I think one of the things I would do is reach out to the county to look at our permitting and planning process for both county and state. Where there's duplicity, why don't we look at eliminating that? You know, because time is money. The second thing is corruption. Wherever there's money, follow the money trail. There's a temptation element to that, and there's corruption. You just heard about last uh, week, you know, on Hawaii Island, four people were indicted and charged. Last year, there were six in DPP here on the county. 
So one of the things I bring is, again, a record of putting things together so that we have transparency, we hold people accountable, and we move with urgency. In everything you do, you've got to have these three elements in order to get the job done on time, on schedule, and on budget. Government does not do that very well. Do you remember just about two months ago, I was so <laughs> mortified to hear that the $22.5 million worth of COVID test kits had to be thrown out because they had expired dates. How does that happen? You know, $22.5 million, taxpayer dollars. So this is what I bring to the table, is a record of having done it 34 years. And taxpayers deserve better. Do you think that we need some of those those questions answered? You know, who to hold accountable for the tests? Well, I think you have to have a system first in place. Because without that, then it's really difficult to track down where the department or who is accountable. And, you know, it's not a blame game. It is simply to say that we are in this together, but we need to hold all of us, the government, public servants, especially at the top. We need to hold ourselves accountable because this is all about the taxpayer's money. It's not our money. It's your money that we are responsible for. That was Vicki Cayetano, former Hawaii First Lady and now candidate for governor, who we talked to yesterday afternoon. For more election information and info on candidates, check out the election page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. reality check this morning is with reporter Blaze Lovell. It has to do with big money being spent by political action committees in some key races. Good morning, Blaze. Hey, good morning, Catherine. There's tons of money being millions, spent this year. Millions. <laughs> it's crazy. Many millions. It really is. So there's this super PAC called Be Change Now, and it's backing Kaika Anderson for lieutenant governor, and it's spending more than $2 million to do it. You might remember that name, Be Change Now, from the 2018 election. They spent more than a million bucks getting Josh Green into the LG's office. Uh, and we talk a lot about super PACs, and you'll hear that a lot in the news this week, because super PACs are kind of important in Hawaii elections. You know, as long as they aren't coordinating with any candidate, they can receive as much money as they want, and they can spend as much money as they'd like to either support or oppose candidates, and they're doing that now this year. In fact, they've got a, a pretty um, you know, aggressive ad campaign running, uh, um, uh, targeting Sylvia Luke, the front runner in the LG's race. Yes, and we did talk with her about that. Um, you know, uh, so so uh, uh, talk about your research. What What did you find out? Right. So I think one thing important for, you know, listeners to know right off the bat is Be Change Now. It's a super PAC that's backed by a partnership between the Carpenters Union and local contractors. So in other words, this is the construction industry and they're bringing all their money to bear, you know, supporting the candidates that they want to get into office. Uh, part of the, you know, general understanding is that they're targeting Luke because she didn't support certain initiatives they pushed for, including certain proposals in the 2017 rail bailout package that went through the legislature. Um, now, these ads that they're running on Luke, uh, they, you know, they bring up uh, former Navitech CEO Martin Kao, who was indicted al along with other employees earlier this year. Now, um, they raise questions about this bill that the legislature and Luke uh, helped to push that would have benefited Kao's company in 2017. Um, it raises, uh, you know, it says that Luke got thousands of dollars in campaign contributions from Kao. And that's true. She did get $3,000 from him. But other lawmakers like Josh Green and Colleen Hanabusa also got money from Kao. Uh, Green said he's since given that money to charity. But, G but B Change now supported both of those candidates in 2018, and it still supports Green now. Yeah, and uh, Luke's campaign basically said that you know these ads were stringing together disparate facts, uh, and, and uh, in, in in targeting her record. Yeah, they're calling it a mishmash of facts. It's it's her campaign, and uh, the other public workers unions that support her have also rallied behind. Uh, her and in, in a pretty rare move earlier this week, the heads of four uh, of the unions here actually wrote a letter to the paper, the Star Advertiser, you know, criticizing the ads, these attack ads, and you, you know, saying that they just couldn't sit by and, and you know watch this happen. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're talking, was it $3.7 million that they've spent so far in advertising? I mean, the TV stations must love it, you know, uh, and and those uh, doing the print ads, but that's a lot of money. Yeah, and they've spent just $3.7 million since February, you know. We've got a week to go before the election, and uh, you can bet they're going to keep spending <laughs> money right through Election Day. Yeah, and then as far as the other uh, uh, candidates that they're uh, targeting? Uh, Luke right now is the only candidate that they're targeting, but Be Change Now is also supporting other candidates like Scott Psyche and certain candidates for councils on Honolulu, Maui, and uh, Kauai counties. And those council candidates in particular appear to be you know, friendly to the construction industry or you know, actually work in the industry. Right. So uh, I don't know. So, so what is there to be done, though, uh, about the spending well, there's not much lawmakers can do because of a Supreme Court decision that allows this type of thing. But, you know, it's kind of ironic because the PAC says it wants to challenge the big money interests and lobbyists that control politics here. But the Carpenters Union is one of the biggest and most well-funded interests in the state. You know, they got their own lobbyists and they donate generously to lawmakers. If politics is a game here, they're one of its biggest players. Yeah, well, I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired of these ads. <laughs> I can't wait till it's <laughs> over. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks, Catherine. All right, that was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. To read a full story, visit civilbeat.org. You know, just yesterday, the state increased the boundaries around Rocky, a nursing monk seal, and her pup at Kaimana Beach. Officials believe the pup may be weaned in about two to three weeks, but that takes it up very close to a major swimming competition that draws hundreds of swimmers to that very beach. We talked to Stefan Ranke, the race director about the Waikiki Rough Water, about where things stand. The very first message we put out to our swimmers was, hey, there's a monk seal pup down there. If you go down there, pay attention to all of the signs, pay attention to all the instructions, follow them. We've also told them we fully expect that by the day of the race, the uh, pup and her mother will have moved along. You did uh, take precautions during your swim clinics, which you, you know normally hold in advance of, of the race. You went down there, but you didn't go in the water. That, that's correct, Catherine. We made a, a conscious decision that we were, as an organization, not going to do anything that would even begin to... Uh, appear to put the monk seal or the mother or the pup in, in any type of jeopardy, but also because it's respectful of what the DLNR and the uh, NOAA is saying, we really think people need to pay attention. You know, always people should pay attention to the signs that are on the beach, the instructions of lifeguards. They're there for an important reason. That's for safety. And so, you know, the saying is, if in doubt, don't go out. We subscribe to that. People should pay attention. A lot of people, I think, are probably looking forward, you know, to this event just because, you know, of the pandemic. A, a lot of um, athletic competitions, you know, were, were uh, scaled back. Any sense as to, you know, how many people you might expect out at Kaimana come Labor Day? We're expecting a crowd of somewhere between six and 800 folks participating in the race, and they bring their friends and family along. So it's going to be a good-sized crowd down there on race day and on at the Hilton for the finish. Uh, and, and just a reminder, we are actually are having a clinic at the Hilton in a couple of weeks, and there we will get in the water if the conditions allow it. This is going to be our first event since the pandemic. The last two years, uh, we were forced uh, to make a tough decision. Uh, we think we made the right decision each year, but it was a, a, a very tough decision because swimmers just like the water. Uh, we get in the water, you know, we, we like to swim, we like to uh, compete, and of course, Waikiki is the most beautiful water uh, available for competition. You know, we see so many wonderful things off the Kaimana Beach on the way down to the Hilton, and it'd be a shame not to be able to do it. Uh, we fully expect it to go forward. And, it, and let me just make one little note, too. We encourage people to be in the water places other than Kaimana Beach right now. Uh, the other side of the course, the Hilton is wide open. And, of course, Alamoana Beach, which is the people's beach, is always available, and it's a great place to train. Hawaii, the beaches are wide open, plenty of places to swim, plenty of safe places to swim. You should always practice safety when you swim, swim with somebody else. Make sure you're wearing a bright colored hat and uh, know your own limit. Uh, places like the Hilton and Alamoana Beach are great for that. And then uh, have you reached out to NOAA? Have you had any uh, conversations about 
you know, the next couple of weeks? Only informal conversations. We we know that they're busy. We don't want to, you know, belabor them with our our concerns. And we fully expect from everything we know that we will be able to go forward with the race on the Labor Day weekend. You can still register for our race. We're online. Take a look. And if, if you want to come down and just watch, that's great, too. There's a, it's a great family event at the finish line. You'll see a lot of good athletes and good people just having a good time. Are you getting any interest at all from Japan? We've had some interest in, in, from uh, people from outside the state, uh, from Japan, from Australia. We've got a lot of folks coming in from the West Coast. We're expecting a kind of normal crowd. We probably won't have the same level of, of Japanese participation this year, but we still have another uh, another 30 days for sign-ups, so we'll see. The main thing is uh, keep everybody safe. Absolutely. That was Waikiki Rough Rider Race Director Stefan Rinke, and you know, we should note that earlier this morning, the U.S. Postal Service debuted a series of stamps honoring the treasures found in our underwater parks. It includes a Hawaiian monk seal and a second marine creature from Hawaiian waters, including Papahanao Mokuakea. We talked to National Marine Sanctuary Site Director Chris Seri about marking 50 years of the system that stretches from American Samoa to Boston's Atlantic shores. We were so lucky that in 1972, there was a lot actually happening with the ocean, and people really realized it was time that we needed to protect it. We had a lot of problems with pollution, and one of the results of people really kind of awakening to the need to protect the ocean was create the National Marine Sanctuary System. And the idea was very similar to national parks. We needed to protect these very significant areas that were important for natural resource purposes, for cultural purposes, to preserve our maritime heritage. And so thus was born National Marine Sanctuary System. The first site in the system was actually the Monitor, um, the Civil Warship. And then over the last 50 years, it's expanded now to 15 different sanctuaries and also includes two monuments as well. And we're celebrating this really by these beautiful images because there's no better way to show the specialness of our ocean than by showing these beautiful pictures. And we're inviting people to say spectacular. So we just think these places are spectacular. And so really to recognize that they have these beautiful places in our ocean and people play this incredible role in terms of protecting them for future generations. Tell us about these images that you selected. I mean, who took all these photos? Well, it's a variety of different photographers. Some of them are professional. Some of them are people that work at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And some are actually just amateurs. Every year, the Office of National Marine Sanctuaries, which is the trustee for these sites, sponsors a Get Into Your Sanctuary competition. It's actually going on right now, and people can submit their photos. So some of these are just from folks that really just have a great love of the ocean and have taken these pictures. And so this does include then two from Hawaii? You know, when everybody hopefully gets their postage stamps, um, there's a picture from Papahanaumokuakea of boobies, and they're just centered like right in the first row. And then there's the iconic and amazing monk seal that was photographed in Hawaiian Island humpback whale. Yes. Well, we are thoroughly enjoying the uh, antics of a baby pup and a mother seal at Kaimana Beach (laughs) this week. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) They are extraordinary animals. You know, I think one of the things we're really hopeful for is when you're the areas that you protect are underwater. It's sometimes difficult for people to know that they're there. We don't have, you know, gates around something or big billboards put up there or anything like that. So we're really hopeful that the post office, by calling these out, is going to bring recognition to the fact that these are these extraordinary areas that are held in trust for the American people all across our country. And, you know, when you look at these images, I mean, it's everything from, you know, sharks to Mm-hmm. jellyfish to whales. And there's a really interesting one that comes all the way from the East Coast. There's a ghost ship, as it's known. So one of our latest sanctuaries is actually just outside of Washington, D.C. It's called Mallows Bay in the Potomac. And there's a number of ships there that were from World War One, And they actually tell the history of how we started becoming this kind of great maritime nation from from the military perspective by the number of ships that were uh, built during that time period. So it kind of also gives you a look back at at history as well. So it's uh, marine archaeology as well as Mm -hmm. just the appreciation of the wonderful marine life that exists in these undersea parks. Exactly. So where does the money go (laughs) when when I go to buy my stamp? Will it go to the post (laughs) office? Will it go to the marine preserves? It will actually be going to the post office. 
But that's okay, because if you go out and buy those stamps and you put a stamp on the envelope, all of a sudden you're going to have shared the spectacular places with yet another person and anybody whose hands get to touch that stamp. But we're just so thrilled that the post office chose to, to highlight National Marine Sanctuaries. Papahanaumokuakea National Monument, which you know is just an amazing area and pristine place, is actually undergoing the process of being considered as a National Marine Sanctuary. So that's one really kind of exciting activity that's taking place in Hawaii right now. But a lot of our work, we focus in on, on the water stewardship. So we try to do a lot of work by engaging communities in the stewardship of these areas. So one of our programs that we're working on, and I have to tell you, I hope we can expand to Hawaii, is called Gold Clean Seas, where we work with dive operators to actually go remove derelict fishing debris or other kind of marine debris that might entangle corals or fans or get entangled around animals themselves. And so we do that in community with dive operators and sometimes with commercial fishermen. The other thing we do a lot, and this is very important in Hawaii, obviously, is our great whales, our humpbacks, our right whales, sperm whales, all sorts of amazing whales often also get entangled in different kind of marine debris or derelict fishing gear. So we do a lot of work to try to help disentangle should a whale get entangled. And then we also try to work very hard at trying to find solutions to prevent entanglements in the first place. This week, we just had a vessel pull into port, you know, with tons of marine debris from Papahanaumokuakea. <laughs> Kuakea, so that was a good thing. Yep, there's a lot of reasons why debris kind of accumulates up at Papahanaumokuakea, and really the strong need to go in there and clean it up, and we've always been happy that we've been able to be part of that partnership on protecting the monument, because, yeah, I mean, it's, it can be a tremendous impact on a variety of resources as well. And, you know, one of the things that we try to do which we think is really important. We have a program called Ocean Guardians. We know how important children, youth are to protecting the environment over the long term. And so we often work with schools to teach how you can be a caregiver of the environment through protecting your watershed. And I know in Hawaii, watershed protection is just huge. And so we do a lot of work because there's that strong connection between the land and sea. That was Chris Seri, who's with the National Marine Sanctuaries System, talking about the first issue rollout of stamps, forever stamps, commemorating the 50th anniversary of our underwater parks. And the Postal Services don't delay in ordering or, or picking those up because they expect those to be very popular. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, with artworks and home furnishings that reflect the life and colors of the islands. Featuring Annie Sloan chalk paint, shipping available. Magnolia-Hawaii.com When journalist Stephen Thrasher compared HIV and COVID maps, he discovered a pattern. So I was realizing it wasn't the characteristics of the individual viruses. It was more that they're the same social drivers are why people get into the path of viruses. Why protecting the viral underclass protects you. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. Comedian Joe Coy's first film, Easter Sunday, will be officially released in theaters today. It centers on a Filipino family that comes together to celebrate the holiday and is loosely based on the comic's own family. The film was conceived after director Steven Spielberg, yes, that Steven Spielberg, arranged for Coy to meet with his production company. It's one of the first Hollywood movies about Filipinos that fe features actors with Filipino heritage in lead roles. The cast includes La Bamba star Lou Diamond Phillips and local girl Tia Carrere. The conversations Russell Subiono caught up with Coy as he was promoting the film on the East Coast very early this morning. I know this is weird for me to even say, but my son doesn't know what rice is the way I knew rice. Rice was everything to me. Rice was breakfast, rice was lunch, rice for dinner. 
And I know there's a lot of people out there going, oh, Filipinos eat breakfast? Yes, we do. It's, it's just last night's dinner with an egg. That's all that, that's all that is. And it's delicious. Was it hard to convince the production company to cast actors with Filipino heritage? No. So basically when my special dropped, coming in hot, Amblin called me in for a, a meeting, a general meeting, and that's when we found out that Steven was a fan and wanted to make a movie. I pitched the movie Easter Sunday to them, and they bought it, and that's how this all came about. It was based on my family, and, and that's what we wanted to cast the movie for, was a, a Filipino family. And so when the casting process began, did you kind of have, like, you know, who you wanted to be in the film? I had my, my wish list. Of course, I wanted Ia first and foremost and, and Lou Diamond. I had to have them in the movie. I, I, that was the first thing I said in the meeting was, you know, the people that kicked the doors down for, for us today, I want to pay homage to them and put them in this movie. And so we went after Tia and, and Lou right away. And then, of course, Tiffany Haddish was a right. friend of mine, and that was just a phone call. Uh, and I was like, please be in this movie. And she was like, I'm there. And, of course, Jimmy O. Yang was uh, a, another guy that, you know, is also an EP on this movie. So getting him on this as well, even though he had to juggle it between two other projects that he was doing, he was still able to get into this movie. And you've been and then on top of that, to, to cast other Filipinos, there's millions and millions of Filipino actors out there that aren't even being looked at. And my mother moved to America in 1969, and for 51 years, has never seen a Filipino family being portrayed on the big screen. Not only that, but just even a Filipino character. That alone just tells you the history of Hollywood. The actors have always been there, but due to the systemic racism of Hollywood, they're never given a shot. There's no roles. And for Steven to bless this project and produce such a, a beautiful film about a Filipino family, that's when we were able to finally see that there's a ton of Filipino actors and now a ton of Asian actors out there. And now with this, this movie getting out, we want every immigrant that came to this country to have a voice on the big screen. So this is just a Filipino family. And now I want to see every ethnicity be heard and, and, and let them tell their story. Yeah. Even for us here in Hawaii with such a diverse ethnic population, we're ready to see more of these kinds of stories on the screen. And so that, that kind of leads me to my next question. You know, back in 1995, there was a movie about a fictitious Cuban family that came out entitled The Perez Family, and it starred Alfred Molina, Angelica Houston, and Marisa Tomei, all great actors, but none of whom are Cuban. And then flash forward to today, and your film about a Filipino family starring Filipinos, what are your thoughts on how the entertainment industry is evolving when it comes to inclusion and diversity? Just like representation on the big screen has never been there. Yeah. And just talking to this generation, they don't understand the generation that came here before them. Just imagine leaving your country and you come to America and then you just feel invisible. Even though you call yourself American, you work with all these people, you're speaking English to everybody, but for some reason when you go watch yourself on the big screen, you're not being represented yeah. properly or you're being made fun of, or you're not even there at all. To live during those times and to have the thick skin that, that my mom had, to, to be able to take that type of prejudice and, and just deal with it in her way mentally, to where we're at now in 2022, which is 51 years of her living in America, to finally see a family of Filipinos being portrayed correctly and being played by Filipino actors, it's a long time coming and that door is finally open and the last thing we need to do is close it. I saw it last night. I'm not Filipino, but I have a lot of Filipino relatives and what I saw up on screen was exactly the things that I've seen at parties or, or dinners. And so it was not just hilarious, but it was pretty authentic as well. My whole approach on this movie was to not be the ambassador of what a Filipino family should be portrayed as. My, my whole thing was, this is my story, and I'm going to talk about, loosely talk about my family. And this is what I've seen in my family. And, and yes, we're Filipino. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So when Filipinos go to see this family, which is a Filipino family, they're going to relate to it. 
and I wanted to do it in the right way. One thing I said to the to the writers and, and what I said to the producers was, we're not going to laugh at Filipinos. We're not going to make them the butt of the joke. Like, we're not going to do slapstick. Here's some funny-looking food items that we eat, and, and here's how we eat it. So laugh at us. I wasn't going to do that. I told them that this is my chance to portray my culture in the in, in the right way. And when it comes to the food scene, I want it to look delicious. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I want to showcase Filipino food, and I wanted people to leave that movie that aren't Filipino going, hey, we should try some Filipino food. That looked good. I wanted to do jokes that weren't making fun of Filipinos. I wanted you to relate to my mom as a mom. No matter what ethnicity you are, I wanted you to relate to her as a mom and just understand her struggle and her pain and laugh with her, not laugh at her. So that was the whole point of that. Like, I wanted this to be, most importantly, just a family movie. So I think I've proven it just through my stand-up that you don't need to be Filipino to go to my shows. You know what I mean? Like, every ethnicity is coming to my shows, and that's what this movie's all about. It's specific but not specific. And for Steven Spielberg to be a fan, I think it's obvious that every ethnicity gets this. You get it. It's a family. And Steven Spielberg got it. <laughs> He's like, I get your mom. It reminds me of my mom. Let's make a movie. And that's what this is all about, man. Old Hollywood used to be like, oh, you're Filipino? No one's going to get it. Well, new Hollywood and Spielberg at the front is going, no, 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 no. We get it now. We understand. And it's time to let these people be heard. I just wanted to focus on you for just a second. It seems to me that you're in the top tier of comedians at the moment. In 2017, you had 11 sold-out shows here at the Blaisdell Concert Hall. 2018, you you win Stand-Up Comedian of the Year. 2019, your album Live from Seattle hits number one on the Billboard charts for comedy albums. And I watched your recent Family Feud episode. Steve Harvey gave you some high praise on that. Can you just talk for a moment about what kind of work you put into your career over the last 30-plus years to get you to this point? Man, I... There's a lot of sacrifice, man, and a lot of obstacles and a lot of no's. You know, especially the Live from Seattle Netflix special, like for that to hit number one. And by the way, the list of people that were in the top three were incredible. It was like Flight of the Concords and Adam Sandler's special. So it was like that was such a special moment to have that album at number one because it wasn't supposed to happen. Netflix said no to me. They didn't want to do the special. So I went and shot it myself. And while I was shooting it, they even said, we still don't want it. They're like, we heard you're shooting it. We don't want it. That's the kind of obstacles that I had to go through just to get that special out. A lot of people don't know the struggle that it takes to get to where I'm at now. But, you know, when you hear no, you got to say yes. And you're going to be happy with the rewards when you do that. These obstacles only make you stronger. So, yeah, from that live from Seattle to breaking Mariah Carey's record in Hawaii with 11 sold-out shows, to then eventually doing Coming In Hot, where I sold out the Blaisdell Arena four times, and that's the one Steven Spielberg watched. And now my fourth Netflix special, I sold uh, the Forum out four times. You know what I mean? So that comes out September 13th. And then here I am, this half-white, half-Filipino kid with a story to tell on on stage. Yeah, man, it's, it's been a long, long journey. Before we end, I just wanted to tell you a quick story. My wife is not a stand-up comedian fan. It's just not her bag. But when Coming In Hot came out, we were on a plane from Denver to Louisiana, and I was listening to it on the plane, and she kind of just leaned over. She says, let me me listen. I'll listen to this. So I put the earphone in her ear, and she laughed so hard throughout the, the plane ride. The flight attendants came over and told her to be quiet. I love that. Yeah, so she. I she, love that, man. Seriously. Yeah, seriously. That's it, so cool, yeah. man. What's her ethnicity? What is she? Uh, she's Italian, German, and French. And you know, I love that you said that. And like I said, like the whole, they're not Filipino. They don't get it. It's like no, they all get it. Yeah. The, the jokes are jokes. Funny is funny. Steven Spielberg is Jewish American, mm-hmm. and he's seventy-five years old, and he's not going. Uh, I'm not Filipino. I don't get it. It's like, I get it. It's hilarious. And that's the reality. You know what I mean? And just hearing you talk about your wife laughing so hard that the the flight attendant told her to be quiet. (laughs) Dude, that just put the biggest smile on my face because 
33 years I've been doing stand-up and, and hearing Hollywood telling me that I was being too specific or people are not going to get it, it was so annoying to hear. So to finally hear stuff like that from people that are not Filipino, it just makes my day, dude. It really does. Thanks so much for your time, Joe. Thank Appreciate you. it, man. Thank you so much, man. Take care. Now that was comedian Joe Coy talking with HPR's Brussels Subiono. Coy says his fourth Netflix special will be released September 13th. His movie, Easter Sunday, is in theaters today. And we're going to leave you with a clip from the trailer. Joseph, are you coming for Easter? I don't know, Mom. I'm really busy. I just tested for this pilot. You're going to be a pilot? A network pilot for, like, a TV show. Ah, you're playing a pilot on the TV show. No, a lawyer. You could have been a lawyer if you only applied yourself. Good old father and son road trip. It's going to be fun. Easter Sunday is like the Filipino Super Bowl. There he is. There's my tonight, okay? I just got here. You got to follow your dream and become a beer spokesman. That was my dream. And I got to follow mom's dream and become a nurse. I've literally never seen this many Filipinos in the same place before. We're sending gifts to our family in the Philippines. I'm sending this brand new hair dryer. If it makes your hair look like that, I wouldn't send it. How dare you? How dare you? We should put them both in the box and ship it. My mom is at war with my Tita Teresa, and they don't even know why. Did you really have to wear the same dress as my mom? Oh, I could help it if I wear it better. This is war. Oops. Family is a mess. We're counting on you to fix it. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, we're all we got. So let's get the party started, baby. I got a feeling. Moments like these are few and far between. Let's enjoy it. Here, we'll buckle up. Filipino families fight a lot. Make sure you're not late for dinner. But we love a lot, too. Well, that does it for this Aloha Friday. Next week, we take you out uh, to a sea urchin hatchery out at Sand Island. We continue our series of interviews with gubernatorial candidates. And want to let you know, our program is produced by Savannah Harriman-Pope, Russell Subiono, Lillian Song, and our intern is Emily Tom. The Backyard Quiz theme, written for us by John DeMello. Our theme music, courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.